Well, here we go. We're going to get back into the Psalms. And this morning we are going to be in Psalm 86. And uh, this particular Psalm is a prayer of David. And so at this point, you can go to your tablets, you can go to your phones, get to Psalm 86. If you do not have a Bible, our ushers would be glad to provide you one. Just simply put your hand up and they will give you one. If you do not own a Bible, this Bible can be yours. Uh, Feel free to keep it as a gift from us. Uh, Having said that, it has been so joyful and shockingly challenging from being in the book of Psalms. And uh, this week, as I've been preparing for this, I have probably wrestled with this text more than any of the other psalms we've taught, in that the challenge it provides to me that conflicts with my internal desires to react on my own accord and to be, what should I say, flesh-driven in regards to relational conflicts between me and other people. This just happens. When you are in relationship and you are living and interacting with people, conflict happens. That is why, as part of the design of God, we still somehow keep getting up and still engaging people because internally we're designed to need relationship. And that relationship, primarily, it goes vertical. Martin Luther King made this statement. He says, To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Now, why is that the case? That to be a Christian and to be without prayer is like to live and not be able to breathe. It's impossible. Why is it so? Because... Christianity is built on a relationship, not a religion. It's built on a relationship with the Father God through His Son, Jesus Christ, who becomes the mediator between us and Him. And when you have discovered that God loves you, God created you for a relationship with Him, then you'll know that it's by prayer and petition going to Him that we grow in depth in that relationship. God speaks back to us as part of prayer through his word, which is why we teach the word of God each week. But it's in particular those moments of great challenge. And I would say, more often than not, those challenges are relational, that we go to our knees. Abraham Lincoln said this, I have been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of all about me seemed insufficient for the day. Imagine the days that Abraham Lincoln faced. He has a union that's precariously surviving. It's on the doorstep of imploding and dissolving. Each battle brings news, not all of it good. In fact, in the beginning years, Never good. And yet, he was driven by this idea that there was something important that we still needed to hold true to. But there were days he didn't know how to lead people there. So what did he do? He prayed. And I'm sure that he received counsel. In fact, you can read about some of the counsel he received from those around him. Some of it was, just let the states do what they want. 
Some of it was just give up. We're, you're never going to beat them. But he stayed the course and he allowed for the battles to continue because he believed in something greater. But when everybody else's voices were not helpful and maybe even contrarian in nature, President Lincoln prayed. Arguably one of the most powerful men of his day and still to this day, a huge influence upon our history. He even felt insufficient for the task that some of those days brought. King David wrote this psalm. This psalm was written in light of something relational that was going on that would cause him to be in fear for his life. You get this from verse 14 when he says, Arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you. So many theologians are trying to figure out, so which context is he speaking to? Because there were several moments that he might be speaking to, but I would say that the most likely possibilities are two. One was with King Saul. King Saul was definitely one that had moments of good and moments of bad. He prophesied. He was a spiritual leader at times that led the nation to praying and rejoicing and worshiping God. And then there were other times he sought diviners and witches for his guidance. And then he was driven to madness in his final days as he was completely driven by jealousy in going after David. You see, David was his armor bearer. He was the one that was taking, the one that was taking care of King Saul in any kind of a battle situation. But as time went on, David became more popular than the king. Saul did not like the songs being sung. David, or Saul has killed his hundreds, but David has killed his thousands. Saul was driven to a point where he began to plot against David. Multiple times trying to kill him. Even sending the army after David and his friends. Now, one piece of information I have not yet mentioned about this is that Saul was the father-in-law to David. Now, for those of you who are married in the room, maybe you've had to flee the father-in-law. I'll never forget one of the first nights that I met my father-in-law and I brought my wife home. He showed me his entire gun collection by laying it out and cleaning each gun while he talked to me. There's just special moments of bonding like that between a father-in-law and a son-in-law. In this case, I never felt threatened for my life, but the, the little gleam in his eye was a little bit disconcerting. But I had to feel a little bit that this was just him playing tricks on me. But for David, his father-in-law, it was rage. It was rage. And it was something to be feared when he is the most powerful man of the nation. So perhaps this psalm was written while he was fleeing from his father-in-law. But there's another possibility as well. It's later when David is now king. And he is now fleeing from Absalom, one of his sons. Absalom had become greedy and impatient for power. He wasn't ready or willing to wait for David's passing to become king. 
He seized it by slowly, slowly dripping seeds of doubt into the people of the nation, suggesting that he could do a better job than his father. And then when the time was right, Absalom created the coup that he had been long planning. And David had to flee because the people temporarily joined Absalom. So now David's fleeing from his son. After years earlier, fleeing from his father-in-law. Can you fathom such relational divide that in your own household, you are fleeing for your life? That's the reality of David's life. And that's in the context of how he would write such a psalm as Psalm 86. So let's read the entire psalm now, and then we will begin to go through pieces of it at a time. Beginning in verse 1. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call out to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I am in distress, I call to you because... You answer me. Among the gods, there is no one like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Verse 11. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may rely upon your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord, my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. Arrogant foes, are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you. But you, Lord. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Show your strength in behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness that I may see it and be put to shame. And then for you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Hear me, he says. Hear me because I am poor and needy. So we're going to interpret and filter the rest of this psalm under the header. Help me, Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. The phrase meaning that I am in a poor spirit. I am, I am humble, I am broken, and I need something from you. 
So under that spirit, King David, whose life is being threatened, petitions God to hear him. Under the auspices, again, I am in anguish, poor in spirit, and in need of your help. Spare my life, in verse 2. Spare my life, for I am a godly person who trusts in you. Have mercy on me because I'm the type of person that calls on you all day. Bring happiness to, me, to my day, God. I'm tired of being fearful. Have you ever been in a place where you would say to God in your prayers, I am poor and I'm needy. When I think through the times when I was most broken and I was most desperate when I was praying to God, more often than not, it was because of a relational situation. I love people. I enjoy working with people. But people are also the ones that give me the most concerns and worry and heartache. It's just part of being human. And it's like anybody else. I don't like when people are upset with me. I really don't like when people spin the narrative to make me look bad. I really don't like when somebody says something about me and causes a relationship that I had to go sour. You feeling it? David is running. He's running from an adversary that was likely a family member. He is in a poor spirit. He's at a low point, And he's crying out to God saying, help me. Spare my life. Have mercy on me. Change my day to something more bright. All the while saying, because I'm poor and needy, I'm a godly person who trusts you, and I call on you all day. I trust in you. He's qualifying every request that he says here in this text. Can you relate? When you cry out to God because of a relational situation, where you say to God, hear me. I've been talking to you every day, God. Hear me. I'm the one that's been speaking truth. Hear me, God. I'm the one that actually serves at church and helps other people. Hear me, God, and fill in the blanks. We want somehow to make our appeal stand out to God all the more by qualifying it with the things that might describe us as to being worthy of God's response. I want to tell you a story that I'll share more as we go through the sermon, but the story is of a friend of mine, and it's currently going on right now. For the sake of confidentiality, I'm going to just give general descriptions. My friend works for a portion or a form of government. As part of that entity, he failed to do a task that is common, that's meant to be in a timeline and done in a certain manner. And he was slow to the task. Another person in the same department sees this as an opportunity to gain an edge. Because again, it's human nature 
Sometimes we try to rise through the ranks in the sphere of influence or the workplace that we're in through our good work and hard efforts. And other times we rise through the ranks of pushing others down so that we get elevated up. And in this is the case, the latter is the case in my friend's situation. Somebody in his department sees this opportunity as a means to lower him in the eyes of the bosses to elevate themselves up. A false accusation or a narrative begins about this task that had been delayed. True to government, it begins a process. And in that process, he was given unpaid leave. Because the accusation and the spin of it was serious enough to say, you're on leave, but we're not going to pay you. And then you got to go through this process to where we can get to the truth. The process began 18 months ago. And it is still going. 18 months of living under a false narrative. Yes, there was a mistake. But not according to a malicious or ethical intent to cause something to be for personal gain. I'm keeping details out. I hope you'll understand. But in this case, my friend who made a mistake is being judged for something much greater than what actually happened. 18 months under a false narrative. 18 months of it being made public because, you know, government's supposed to make all things public. So they say. 18 months of living where everybody thinks you did dot, dot, dot. When in reality, what you did is this. Where would you be in your prayers? Your livelihood's at stake. Your career's at stake. Your family is now suffering for 18 months without the income it is used to. What would your prayer look like to God? Hear me, Lord. Answer me. Can't you see I'm poor and needy? Spare me. Spare my life. Spare my career. Spare my family. I'm a godly person. Can't you see that? I trust in you. Why are you not acting? Have mercy on me. I'm calling on you every day. And yet it still remains in balance. Can you bring good news today? I mean, I'm trusting in you. I've watched my friend and his family go through the waves of emotions that can come in such a context. Oscillating and changing from anger and wanting to retaliate to, at other times, just simply choosing to guard words and let the truth be made known through the process. And other times, feeling lost and defeated. Guessing that things will never go back to normal. Where do you stand? How do you pray in such a moment? Some of you might be in a relational context right now where you are fearing or facing something that is really undoing you and it's causing your reputation or your sense of 
confidence about who God is in your life and what you're supposed to be doing with your life. Regardless of whatever relational divide you're experiencing now, has there been moments where you wanted to just retaliate, react, rip them a good one, as I would say, and I just did, There are moments I just want to not have to be given account to what I'm thinking and what I want to do. I want to just be impulsive. But life has taught me that's not going to accomplish anything but a momentary sense of feeling good. Because it will only last shortly. David has lived long enough to know that same truth. He knows that if he rides this situation out under his own impulses, it will not go well. So God, do something, intervene now. 18 months of repeated prayers. And it's still going on right now. What would be your advice to my friend? What would be your advice to my friend's family? David, having a familial situation that's causing his life to be at risk, after making these pleas before God and and giving a qualifying statement as to why God should respond, look what he says in verses 5 to 9. He says, You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call upon you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. Why? Because when I'm in distress, I call to you and you answer me. Among the gods, there is no one like you, Lord. Deeds, can, your deeds cannot be compared to because no other God can do what you do. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord, and bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. David wants to fight. Keep in mind, he's a warrior. He had won many battles. And he knows that he could probably make a bloody mess of this and come out in a good place. But he realizes too much will be lost if he does so. What good would it be to destroy part of his family so that he could stand at the end? So he became confident in God's character that God will intervene. God is forgiving and good and loving to all who call upon him. And he knows that if he calls upon him, he will answer. And there is no God that will do that except for God because he's the one and only God. You see, sometimes if we go about these relational conflicts and we never stop to petition God or allow God to adjust our heart and our perspective... We lack this moment of clarity that David has. Because in it he says, I call out to you and I know you'll answer me. I need you and I know you will respond. I know that your character is good because your deeds are always revealing your good nature. Truth is entering in in this desperate moment. Which then leads to the most important verse in my opinion in this chapter. Verse 11. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely upon your faithfulness. 
And give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Teach me your ways, Lord. You see, again, in relational conflicts, I know how to do it my way. You don't have to teach me that. I got that one down. Talk to my family. I know how to react. Talk to my friends that have been around me for many years. Even, even some of the pastoral team members will tell you, oh, we've seen that Tony is not perfect like Jesus. Close. Don't gag back there, Ann. I saw that face. The reality is, is that when you spend time with people, you can't help but to be yourself in moments and you respond and you react and it's not good. I've had to apologize so many times over the years while in ministry to people who serve alongside me because I am not perfect. It's easy to act and do it my own way. But David realizes my way will make matters worse. So he says... Teach me your way, Lord. Teach me your way that I may rely upon your faithfulness, your character, not mine, which is imperfect. Because I will fall short regularly. So teach me your ways that I may not then rely upon myself because I need to trust your character because it's always good. And mine is more often than not bad. David realizes, and this is a man that God says is a man after his own heart. And yet David knows that he is somebody that is imperfect and is prone to failure. And is, uh, and we see in the text regularly throughout his journey, he does react like other human beings and make a mess of things. But in this moment... As he's crying out to God and praying, instead of reacting to the situation, he's praying. Then God reveals his character again and anew. And then that's what causes David to say, yes, your character, your ways, Lord, teach me that. Not what I would naturally be inclined to do. Then he says, transform my heart. Uh, make sure that my heart's not divided. Because if I'm loyal to two things, eventually they will be in opposition to each other. You cannot serve both God and yourself or your endeavors. You must choose. That's why David says, give me an undivided heart. Because if our hearts are about making sure that the narrative changes so that I stand in the end... My heart then isn't inclined towards God and his good name. It's more about my name and where it stands at the end of the story. Then he says, that I may fear your name. You see, in the end of all things, we have to choose who we're going to fear more. Fear man, mankind, and those around us, or fear God. It was Jesus who made this statement. He said, you should fear the one who has the power to throw you in hell, not fear the one who merely has the ability to kill you. But then Jesus adds to this. But that same one who has the power to throw you into hell is the same one who knows details about you, the hair, amount of hair you have on your head, 
and cares even for a dirty sparrow. So, when we talk about fearing God, we're fearing the one who has the power, yes, to control the destination of our souls. And we're fearing him more than any person here on this earth. But we're fearing the one who also is so compassionate and loving that he cares about details of you and I that we don't even care about for ourselves. And he cares about things on this earth that we just kind of disregard. That's the God we serve. So in the end of the day, when we pray about these relational conflicts and we're praying in desperation out of a poor and needy spirit, what's the end game? What's the end game when you're praying? Again, you're seeing this movement of David's heart. He begins with the petition and qualifying his request as being worthy of being heard. And then he realizes, you know what? Your character is good. So change me, God. Change me, God. May I fear you with an undivided heart. Then in verse 12, he changes the narrative. He says, I will praise you, Lord, my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. Which basically means this. The chief end of prayer is proclaiming God's glory. It's about God getting glory. It's not about our names being cleared. So as I think of my friend who's 18 months had his name smeared. It's not just praying that he has his name cleared. Although I do pray that. It's praying that God will get glory in this situation in the end of the day. Because I believe when God gets glory, those who are following after him will be raised up by God. And so David realizes that in spite of enemies trying to kill him, he wants the glory of God to be seen. And he says, for great is your love towards me. You are the one that has delivered me from the depths and from the realm of the dead. And then in verse 15, but you, Lord, are the compassionate and gracious God. You are the one that's slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So turn to me and have mercy on me and show your strength in behalf of your servants. Save me because I serve you just as my mother did. One last qualifier. He threw the mother card down. If he's not going to hear me about anything else, certainly he understands that my mom is worthy to be heard. But he concludes with saying, you know what, God? Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame because they realize it is the Lord who has helped me and comforted me. So the end game isn't for you to be vindicated. The end is for God to be seen in truth and power because he's worthy of it. He's worthy of it. Which is then why verse 11 is so important because it says, so Lord, it's about you. It's not about me. So therefore, teach me how I should go about this day. Teach me how I should go about this situation. Help me to rely upon your character, not my own. And then give me that undivided heart where I'm not so tempted to go my way, but to be truly committed to you because I ultimately fear you more than any person here on this earth. So for you, I want you to get the glory. 
You want to know when God delights in a prayer? It's when you realize it's about his glory. It's about his character. And it's about the fact that he loves you and he wants to show you the way to find victory in these broken relationships. Let's pray. So Father God, in this moment, I say work in our hearts. Show me your ways. Work in me that my heart's not divided, that I'm holding on to two authorities equally, only to realize it's an impossible task. May my heart be yielded just to you and you alone, fearing your name and finding strength there. So God, in the way that I have mentioned my friend, I acknowledge that there are people here in this room who also have broken relationships or have difficult things where maybe they don't like the narrative that's out there. I ask God that you will guide their heart to pray to you and empty themselves of all those qualifications so they can get to the place of realizing your character is worthy of our trust. So that we get excited about however this goes, that you will get glory in our life. Because that's what we want to see, is you get the glory. So God, do a work in our hearts now as we are poor and needy people in need of your work. I pray this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand please as we conclude with a hymn, an old hymn called, I Need Thee.
Billy Graham once said this, I never met anyone who spent time in daily prayer and in the study of the word of God and was strong in faith who was was ever discouraged for very long. So if you're discouraged by a relational divide that has happened between you and someone else, keep staying the course of going to God, hearing from him in his words with such psalms as Psalm 86, being strong in the faith to know that God's character is worthy of your trust and that he is sovereign and he will bring about good things in your future. And when you do this, your discouragement will not last. Having said that, I acknowledge that such a passage as this can be very practical So that's why I'm encouraging you to memorize Psalm 8611 and to use the patterns of Psalm 8611 to have a discussion with either your life group, your family, or friends asking, what challenges do you have this week where you need to ask God to teach you his way of handling this situation? Or what about God's character do you need to cling to this week in regards to what's going on in your life? Or in the past few days, really be honest, what has divided your heart? Where you'd say your love for something else is equal or greater to your love for God that's divided your mind and heart that you need to get right. And then what are the common fears that keep you from walking in fear of God? I believe that if you get honest with some other people in regards to those questions, it will lead to a time of prayer that will be rich. And it will renew your perspective like David in his situation where he feared for his life, but he grew strength and drove from strength from this this situation where God was teaching him. So what I want to do to close out is to ask you to be honest. If you have a current situation where there is a relational divide that you are working through and you need God's direction for, would you hold your hand up now? And I'm going to put mine up because I have one. Would you hold your hand up now? And I'm going to just pray. Pray for us that are dealing with that in the name of Jesus. So God, I just pray for those whose hands are up, whether here in the room or at home, they're dealing with a broken relationship. I ask God that we would be honest enough to say my ways don't work. And that we'll also be acknowledging that my character is not as good as your character. And that you would then undivide our heart and bring it in unity with yours so that we can fear you more than any man here on this earth. So God, guide us to that place because there then we'll begin to realize it's not about me. It's about you and you getting glory. So I pray that this will happen in these broken relationships, that you'll make them whole again in a way that brings you glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I'll be praying this week for you. Memorize Psalm 8611. Let it guide you in the way you pray about broken situations. God bless and you are dismissed.